Hello and welcome to the Derek Hunter Show for this Thursday, the 17th day of August, 2023. Hold on, baby, hold on, as Wilson Phillips sang back when I was in college. One more day and the week is in the can. And Derek returns you to regularly scheduled programming. Until then, I am your guest host, Dean Carianis, a columnist at the New York Sun and a member of Rush Limbaugh's highly overrated staff on his television show, radio program, and website. About 25 years I spent with Rush, and let me tell you, it was as much fun to work there as it was to listen. I'm also the host of the History Author Show on iHeartRadio, over 250 interviews there. Check us out at historyauthor.com or wherever you listen to Good Pod. And you can also find me at History Dean on Twitter. I want to get these plugs out of the way quickly because we have a lot to get to. Everybody's working for the weekend, and that includes Derek Hunter, who will be doing the weekend effort review as scheduled on Saturday, right after the clock strikes midnight. Support his efforts to talk about the news the way it deserves to be talked about, which means with lots of uncensored profanity. Do that at patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast or at DerekHunter.Locals.com. Those of you who don't know what the Week in Effort Review sounds like, here's a clip to give you the spirit of it. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street, and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to ride. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. Damn it. My life has value. That is anchorman Howard Beale in the 1976 film Network. Tune in to the Week in Effort Review to see just how close Derek gets to that performance by Peter Finch. It's not too far off, although he doesn't send us to our windows to scream at the entire city of Washington. It might not be a bad idea. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! Finally, you can win an autographed copy of Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's Never Give an Inch, Fighting for the America I Love. If you go to nysun.com book, enter the big sweepstakes. And remember, you can also subscribe to the New York Sun for just a penny a day, the exact same price it was in 1833 when Andrew Jackson was in the White House. You can do that at nysun.com mug. And the slash mug is because you get a free snazzy New York Sun mug as a thank you. We would love to have you as a reader. Please do join us there. And now on to the news of the day. Once we finish with this segment, I'm going to bring you some more music history. I'm going to discuss the link between the band Led Zeppelin and the family of the famous Count Von Zeppelin, Baron Von Zeppelin, the man who was a pioneer in those rigid airships, not to be confused with blimps, 
There's a really fun story that I want to tell you. But first, before we get to the fun, let's get to the tough news. And that is war. Zeppelins were used in war. They are now very outdated. But what we're seeing in Ukraine is a throwback to the period of the Great War, World War I, when Zeppelins were used to terrorize the populace of Great Britain, when they were thought to be the next big thing in avionics, the next big innovation in warfare. The war in Ukraine has stalled down to similar World War I era tactics with trench warfare and with neither side gaining much. And you could tell Ukraine is not gaining much because the press has fallen pretty silent about it, if you've noticed. And if Ukraine was doing great, all those folks out there who've suddenly put Ukrainian flags on their bios on Twitter would be talking about it nonstop. But they're not because things are not going well. If you'd picked up a history book, you'd probably get an idea that Russia's strategy is just as it was in the Great War, as it was in World War II, throw wave after wave of soldiers at the enemy until the enemy is just too depleted to fight on. They don't have a really big value placed on the lives of their soldiers. In fact, Ukraine was successful early in the war, killing a lot of high-ranking Russian officers, but that's pretty much what Russia does anyway. Stalin had plenty of purges killing high-ranking military officers. This is going to be their strategy. They've lost a lot of people, and they have a different attitude than we do about taking those casualties. And I'll tell you, I really resent the idea that by looking at the realities of the war in Ukraine and of the Russian military, that somehow now you're a Russian apologist. I was against Russian communism before it was cool. I was against Soviet expansion before it was cool. Now, suddenly, all the same people who said, well, we shouldn't really fight the Cold War. Well, they're just like us. Remember Sting wrote that song called Russians? Oh, I hope the Russians love their children, too. Mr. Reagan says we will protect you. I don't subscribe to his point of view. Well, Ukraine comes along and Sting comes out and he retracts the song. I guess I learned now the Russians don't love their children too. This is insane. It's such an insane flip that there's never any apology. There's never any admission of wrongdoing. Where were these people today who say, not an inch for those evil Ruskies. Stop those Reds right at the border. Where were they when the Contras were begging for funds and arms to fight for democracy in Nicaragua? Well, I'll tell you where they were, many of them guys like John Kerry, guys like the Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, they were meeting with the communist dictator, the Sandinista dictator, Manuel Noriega, telling him, hey, you know, just keep it on the down low. We'll dig you. They were passing the Boland Amendment, banning, supplying the Contras. They were just fine with a Soviet satellite on America's border, practically. Now, oh my gosh, they make Joe McCarthy look like a dove. And not only do they do that, we're not to have any part of it. We always have to be the enemy on the other side of, I guess, what you'd call the establishment. And this is insane. The amount of money we're spending on what is more or less a Soviet civil war. What is the end game? I wrote a column in January headlined, As America Floods Ukraine with Arms, Biden's Lack of an Exit Strategy Looms. I may be the only person in all of media who has used the term exit strategy since George W. Bush left the White House. Do you remember all of that talk about exit strategy? What's his exit strategy? Where's the exit strategy? Nobody's asked that once about Ukraine. A friend of mine told me recently that the business of America is business was Calvin Coolidge's slogan. Now the business of America seems to be warfare. 
The war on terror ended. We were spending all of that money in Afghanistan. Now, hey, we found a new market for all of this military hardware. And I don't think that makes you some kind of peacenik or that makes you some kind of conspiracy theorist. We are flooding Ukraine with arms. And this is what I wrote about then in January. NATO's chief, Jen Stolberg, said the war in Ukraine is consuming an enormous amount of munitions and depleting allied stockpiles. The current rate of Ukraine's ammunition expenditure is many times higher than our current rate of production. This puts our defense industries under strain. Now it's eight months later, and Russia is fighting that war of attrition. I wrote at the time, while much is said about bleeding Moscow's war machine dry, America's allies are also hemorrhaging. If Europe were to fight Russia, an unnamed diplomat told Reuters at the time, some countries would run out of ammunition in days. I wrote another column, I may have written too, about Germany. Germany couldn't fend off a reasonably aggressive Boy Scout troop at this point. They have, I think, 24 hours of ammunition. They have nothing. They have maybe two tanks that work. And that's something that I'm going to get to in a minute as far as the condescending attitude that these European countries have. They have these massive socialist bureaucracies. They have these huge welfare states. And then they mock the United States for not having those things. And this used to be a point that the American left raised all the time about how, oh, America, we have all this money to spend on war, war, war. Have you seen Code Pink lately? Have you seen a single anti-war protest lately? Remember those bumper stickers that they used to have? It'll be a great day when schools have all the money they need and the Pentagon needs to have a bake sale to buy a bomber. Have you seen anything like that? Have you seen anybody doing that breakdown of, I believe it's $900 was the headline that I saw, per household for Ukraine? Ukraine's not the 51st state. Ukraine isn't even a member of NATO. We are not obligated to bankrupt ourselves in their defense, especially since if they take out Zelensky, guess what's going to happen? The same thing that happened in Afghanistan. All that hardware is going to fall into the hands of our enemies. And Ukraine, which was Putin's intention in the beginning, his strategy in the beginning, is going to be to just turn it into a Russian satellite, turn it back into a Russian satellite. And don't forget, President Biden offered to fly Zelensky out of there and turn over Ukraine to him. And Zelensky, good for him, fighting for his country, said, I don't need a flight out. I need guns. <laughs> and that's what we've been sending him. And of course, we want to support that. But I resent the idea that those of us who celebrated that President Reagan pushed back the Soviets and said in his 1988 speech to the Republican convention, I remember, not an inch has been lost to the Soviet Union during my two terms in office. I remember hearing people mock that back when we religiously watched the Sunday shows, and that's the only place you could get news. People mock that line. That ah, was no big deal. Said communism was kind of cool. I mean, look at all those beatniks. Look at all those far left communists that are down in places like the East Village in New York. Nowadays, those same people are saying, we will spend every last dollar to support Ukraine, quote, as long as it takes, Mr. Biden said. That is just unsustainable. I want to remind you of somebody, a congressman, Fortney Stark. He used to say his name was Pete, which I know I've been on a rant about names lately, but your name is Fortney, buddy. You don't want it to be Fortney. You have to officially change it. Your name is Fortney. It's not a good name, I understand, but your name ain't Pete. Pierre Dupont, senator from Delaware, same thing. Pierre, Pierre, those of you who remember that SNL bit with Bob Dole, your name's Pierre. Why are you telling people it's Pete? Stark was a nasty guy. He was a bigot. During the Gulf War, he accused Jewish colleagues of being responsible for the fighting there. 
he was somebody who was always against war. Would he be now? I don't know. He's no longer with us, so we can't tell. But I don't hear anybody of his ilk. And I'll remind you what he said on October 18th of 2007 during George W. Bush's presidency and the war in Iraq. He was having a debate with a fellow congressman, Congressman Joe Barton, and he said, you don't have money to fund the war or children, but you're going to spend it to blow up innocent people if we can get enough kids to grow old enough for you to send to Iraq to get their heads blown off for the president's amusement. Now, what a sweetheart. Do you hear anybody who is that passionate? I mean, this guy was a rabid, angry, hateful guy. Do you see anybody like that now who's that angry? And he didn't apologize for it. He said, I respect neither the commander in chief who keeps them in harm's way, speaking of these soldiers, nor the chicken hawks in Congress who vote to deny children health care. Now, I don't know where the obsession with children got to be in this. We certainly can do two things at once, spend for the war in Iraq, where we had our men, not Ukrainian men, under fire. But that term chicken hawks jumped out at me because you have not heard that since George W. Bush left office. And chicken hawks, for those of you who don't know, that was a phrase for men who molested children. That's what he was calling the commander in chief. But chicken hawks, funny how that term disappeared, isn't it? For somebody molesting children, for someone like President Biden. George W. Bush served in the National Guard, and he also volunteered to go to Vietnam. Why he didn't make a bigger deal of that when people were accusing him of being a chicken hawk and a warmonger and a draft dodger, I don't know. I get whipsawed back and forth. I'm so confused. With President Clinton, it was fine to dodge the draft. It was an immoral war. Then George W. Bush comes. Dan Quayle it wasn't patriotic. It was bad. He, did, he also served in the National Guard, by the way. Then this war was so terrible, so awful, but John Kerry, he served there for some weeks on a, on a swift boat. He was he was suddenly supposed to be a hero. All this crap whipsaws back and forth. Both President George H.W. Bush and Senator Dole, who is the candidate for Republicans in 1996, they both were World War II veterans. George H.W. Bush was the youngest pilot. He was shot down. His men were actually eaten by the Imperial Japanese on Chichijima. Talk about a hideous story that you would think we would tell more devoured by cannibalism. Similar atrocities were committed by the Japanese against Australian soldiers. So that term chicken hawk that they used against President George W. Bush and others was done with a dual meaning. That was one of them dog whistles you always hear so much about. But President Biden, putting aside the whole thing about children and the really odd, creepy way you see him interact with them, five draft deferments. President Trump had four Gosh, he always wants to be number one, the poor guy. He only got out of the draft four times. Biden got out five times. And Biden also brags he was a big football star at the University of Delaware. Well, he wasn't, but no one ever thinks to ask him, wait a minute, you were able to be out there on the gridiron? But you say now you had asthma. No mention of it at the time. But you say you had asthma. How come you couldn't go serve? And this is something that good old Fortney Pete Stark said. He supported reinstating the draft because he said it was a protest against war. And he said, if we're going to have these escapades, we should not do it on the backs of poor people and minorities. Well, Fortney, if you were here today, I'll talk real loud so you can hear me wherever you are. He didn't believe in an afterlife. He wasn't real kind to religious people, not just Jewish people. But how about that now? Five deferments, five men. If he was telling the story, be five poor people, five minorities went and fought in Vietnam. And what do they always say? They fought and died in Vietnam. They certainly didn't have a Sunday in the park. They certainly weren't having cushy lifetime jobs from safe Senate seats like Joe Biden did. And yet there's none of that. And I'm not saying I would like all of that either. 
I would like a certain amount of support. I would like a unified foreign policy. But the people now calling you a Russian agent or asset, oh, they love the word asset. It's meaningless. It means nothing. It sounds like you're working with them, but it doesn't really mean anything. It's like, it's just so glorious. They love to call you an asset. You're a Russian asset. Where is anybody saying, talk about some peace? Where's anybody saying, how much is enough money? Where are those far leftists like Fortney Stark? I'll tell you, when I was young and I was in college during the first Gulf War, I told an author that once, he was a younger guy, he was a tank commander, and I told him that I was in college during the first Gulf War, and he reacted like I'd said I was at Gettysburg, because <laughs> he was quite a bit younger than me. But I used to look at those guys, even though I understood the importance of the Gulf War, and I would look at people who were anti-war people, and I, I thought they were naive, but I thought it's important that whenever we go to war, we have somebody who is going to object. No matter what, people who don't want any war ever, who would rather die, who are complete pacifists. Well, it turns out I was the naive one because so many of those people who are supposedly anti-war really aren't. You see Code Pink around? Remember they used to announce them in the gallery at hearings, and there's Code Pink, a bunch of dopes dressed as the Statue of Liberty and dressed in these ridiculous outfits, really disgracing the house. And we hate people who go into the house and desecrate Congress dressed in ridiculous outfits. I was outraged by that, too, before it was cool. And they would disrupt everything and they would scream and they would yell and stomp their feet. Of course, then there was a change. President Obama and President Biden came in and the casualties went up in Afghanistan. They foolishly tried to do a surge there because it worked in Iraq for George W. Bush, apparently not realizing that Afghanistan's a completely different country than Iraq is, but they tried it and they didn't pay a price. Our soldiers did. In Ukraine, what happened? Putin invades George under George W. Bush. He does nothing. The guy's in Bolden. Then he goes, he attacks the Donbass. The Obama-Biden administration does nothing. They annex Crimea. Again, the Biden and Obama administration does nothing. What did Obama say in that debate with Romney? Oh, 1980s call. They want their foreign policy back. Oh, it was hilarious. What did Biden do in that debate with Paul Ryan? I will never understand what is wrong with Paul Ryan, what they have in him, that he sat there while Biden laughed like a fool when he's talking about men and women in the U.S. Armed Forces dying. Oh, you want to send money? Oh, you want to go to war everywhere? Ha, 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 ha. And now what? Of course, Putin came back for the whole thing. Didn't do it with President Trump, you notice. Whatever you think of President Trump, people twist themselves into knots to say somehow this is because he was on Putin's side. If this had happened under President Trump, you'd have a reason to say that. But it didn't. And it reminds me of something that he said in one of his interviews with Rush. I was listening on the live feed, so I heard this. It didn't go out over air because it was a profanity. Rush asked him, what about Iran? What are we going to do uh, about Iran if they try something, they get a nuclear bomb? And President Trump said, I've made it very clear to them if they F with us, if they fudge with us, of course, he didn't say fudge or F, we are going to do things to them that have never been done to them before. You know, the Trump shtick. And there was much clutching of pearls of places like Turtle Bay, where the UN is, and at Foggy Bottom, where the State Department is. And everybody was all nervous and all, oh, gosh, we just don't talk like that. But you know what? That first Gulf War, when April Gillespie told Saddam, guy comes and asks for permission to invade Kuwait. And she tells him, no, we have no opinion on inter-Arab wars, on these disputes, this kind of thing. So, of course, Saddam takes it as a green light. It was what he wanted to do anyway. What Putin wanted to do anyway was invade Ukraine. So when Biden 
And again, those 50 years in the Senate, 40 years in the Senate, 50 years in Washington, I always say this is what caused him to behave this way. Shoot his mouth off. Well, we don't know. Maybe they'll just take a little bit of Ukraine and then that would be fine. It wouldn't be so bad. As he's gathering forces there, what was the guy going to think? He's going to hear what he wants. There was a similar situation in the Korean War. Truman was going to weaken South Korea, wasn't going to send them so many tanks. What did the North do? Oh, this is a chance to invade. There's weakness there. I played that clip yesterday, that Pearl Harbor survivor. I interviewed at 103 years old in 2016. He said, weakness invites aggression. That's what I learned watching my fellow sailors, my brothers in arms, go down aboard the USS West Virginia. They thought we were weak. They thought we wouldn't fight. And if you go back and look at the post-war interviews with one Japanese general after another, one Japanese commander, politician after another, we didn't think you would fight. You can't blame them in a way for thinking that, for trying their luck. And right now, the people that are testing us are the Chinese, communist China. And while we're depleting our stockpiles, while we're depleting our stockpiles, we're having to send Taiwan arms out of our arsenal to make sure that they are armed. This can only help communist China. That is our rival right now, not Russia. You want to talk about the 1980s calling and wanting their foreign policy back. Well, Joe Biden's about 30 years too late in saying this better dead than red stuff. In fact, I think they would have pulled him back at the time because the way he looks at Putin, I think, is he looks at him as Trump and he wants to relive that great experience of his life. He feels his great triumph in 2020 was defeating him. I wrote about this in the Washington Times before I was at the New York Sun. He's like Captain Quig. He's going to relive that great triumph with the strawberries and he's going to get to the bottom of this. Well, it is not that easy. And as I said, for someone who dodged the draft five times, it's no surprise he doesn't really understand this. They always talk about Joe Biden's great experience in foreign policy. He doesn't have any experience. He read a bunch of Senate briefs and traveled to a bunch of places. It's like saying you have experience in sex because you read Penthouse Forum and you went to some peep shows. That's not experiencing sex. This brings me to the exclusive we have in the New York Sun yesterday by Anthony Grant, my colleague over in Athens. The headline is, Senator Paul doubles down on call for ceasefire in Ukraine as NATO officials suggest Ukraine cede territory. Now, remember in the Budapest Agreement, the US, UK, and Russia all agreed to respect Ukraine's territorial integrity. President Obama, Vice President Biden, they let Russia carve off, tear off the Crimean Peninsula. So that was out the window. Ukraine did that in exchange for giving up nuclear weapons. Also sends a message to the rest of the world. Make sure you never give up your nuclear weapons. Get them if you can. Don't think Tehran isn't hearing that loud and clear. This is another thing, just like Afghanistan, where President Biden showing the world that you can't count on America's word. I think we're up to six embassies now he's pulled out of. Wasn't this guy's slogan, America is back? I guess he meant back home because we seem to be evacuating from the rest of the world. Anthony Grant's piece begins, President Biden, you should have seen this coming. In the first of a striking pair of developments, a senior NATO official has suggested that Ukraine could gain admittance to the military alliance in exchange for ceding territory to Russia. That's C-E-D-I-N-G, ceding Russia territory, not as in ceding as in you're planting your marigolds. Separately, a Republican from Kentucky, Senator Paul, who for a number of reasons disfavors Ukraine's admission to NATO, exclusively tells the Sun that Russia and Ukraine, quote, should agree to a ceasefire so that peace talks may begin. The two developments throw a curveball or slider at Mr. Biden's strategy of providing military aid to Ukraine for as long as it takes, as Secretary of State Antony Blinken phrased it. The NATO chief of staff, 
Stian Jensen, said at a panel debate in Norway on Tuesday, I think that a solution for Ukraine could be to give up territory and get NATO membership in return. He added that Russia is struggling enormously militarily, unquote, and that it was unrealistic that it can take new territories. Now, everybody is pretty much obsessed with World War II. I guess you could say the 1930s call and want their foreign policy back. The natural parallel is going to be to compare this to the carving up of Czechoslovakia. But there have been other wars where territory was ceded and it did lead to peace. It doesn't always automatically lead to war. I personally am not for it, but I don't want us all to pay for it. And hey, Russia's a nuclear power. And the only thing I have heard the White House say about why Russia won't use nuclear weapons is we say they won't use nuclear weapons. If you play video games, you can turn off the nuclear option so the other side can't use nuclear weapons. Well, unfortunately, that's not the case in the real world. I wrote a column about this last August. The nuclear doomsday clock hadn't moved. They moved just because Trump was elected. And they didn't move when you have literal Russians out there, generals, members of their Duma, their parliament, threatening to nuke us, threatening to use nukes against Ukraine, threatening to drop a nuke on New York City. They said all of these things. The clock stayed right where it was. Just another example of how all of this, all this supposed anti-war idealism just has become corrupted and politicized for one side. That really bugged me. Eventually, they were forced, they were shamed into moving it. I won't take credit for it, but I was the only one saying it at the time. Yeah, the 1980s called and they want their foreign policy back. And that foreign policy is the peace through strength of President Reagan. It's exactly what Lieutenant Jim Downing, that survivor of Pearl Harbor, said to me said he embraced that, peace through strength. Oh, it's so simple. That's not how foreign policy works. Of course, it's how it worked. It worked. The Soviet Union crumbled. And what happened? President George H.W. Bush, who had seen war, who was a World War II veteran, he said, as the Berlin Wall came down, I'm not going to go tap dance on the Berlin Wall. I'm not going to expand NATO. I'm not going to kick Russia when down. We want to work with Boris Yeltsin. We want to be, as Winston Churchill said, in war, resolution, in defeat, defiance, in victory, magnanimity, in peace, goodwill. But who did we elect? We elected President Clinton, who also had not served. He's another one of those. See, I feel bad calling people like that chicken ox. I guess that's because I'm not a dirtbag like Fortney Stark. NATO somehow just became a big club. Just a cool place to hang out. The war was over. It was the end of history, they told us. Ha, ha, ha. The arrogance, the short-sightedness that have declared history over. It's absurd, and we learned painfully how absurd that was. Yeltsin accepted a reunited Germany and incorporating East Germany into NATO. But as one country after another started to go into NATO, it only fed Vladimir Putin. And eventually, he was going to say no more. I think it's counterproductive often to add nations to NATO that can't pull their weight. We showed we could train Ukraine just fine. We made them much more powerful. They would have been able to resist the Crimean invasion if President Obama had trained them the way that they were trained the last several years before the invasion. We don't have to add everybody into NATO. Every time you add a country to NATO, it means we're bound to fight for them. Can you even find Montenegro on a map? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, if someone attacks Montenegro, that's the U.S.'s job. Now rich Uncle Skeleton has to step in there and fight. And when these countries get that, instead of the military, they spend all their money on these giant social safety nets. And then they mock the United States for not having it. We don't have socialized medicine. Our roads are crumbling. That Australian woman who recently a tourist complained we had too many American flags. I'm sure she probably would have some criticisms of the United States too. Well, we're paying to defend Europe when many of them are rich, 
massive economies. Germany certainly is, and Germany won't spend anything on its defense. Although we sympathize with resistance to Vladimir Putin's invasion, Senator Paul told The Sun, a security guarantee recklessly risks a direct clash with a nuclear power. Remember when we were so terrified of nuclear war back in the 80s? Everything Ronald Reagan did, it was supposedly going to bring on a war with the Soviet Union. We should just surrender rather than risk having a nuclear bomb dropped on us. Meanwhile, Ronald Reagan was privately the most anti-nuclear president. He wouldn't even take the briefings on nuclear weapons because he didn't want to even contemplate having to go into a nuclear war. And by the way, who was on the side of the Soviets then? Ted Kennedy sending little love notes over to the Kremlin saying, Here, do not deal with this Reagan cowboy fella. You must absolutely not deal with him. We'll get him out of there in 84, and then we will give you a better deal. And then publicly, they were all complaining Reagan didn't meet with the dictators of the Soviet Union. And he had that great line, well, they keep dying on me. On a dime, they switch. And now suddenly, anybody who says, hey, they have nuclear weapons, maybe we want to avoid fighting them, especially when they're wounded animals backed into a corner, is the crazy person. And what comes after Putin? I know a former Soviet spy who was deep undercover in the U.S. in the latter years of the Cold War. Jack Barsky is the name that he took in America. I've interviewed him a couple of times. His book is called Deep Undercover. You can hear that History Author Show interview, and I have interviewed him for columns since then. He says whoever comes after Putin is guaranteed to be worse. There's no guarantees in life, I guess, but he says it could be worse. You don't know who you're going to get. This idea that you can poke and poke and poke a crazy person is dangerous. That's why you. That's why we had a policy of containment. We didn't have a policy of direct confrontation with the Soviet Union. We had smarter people running things then. Well, Kiev and Moscow, oh, that's another thing. It's Kiev. If we're going to give them billions and billions of dollars, can we at least get them to knock that Kiev crap off? For 50, 60, 70, 80 years, it's been Kiev. I know, I know, I keep going off on pronunciation and names, but I just find silly things like that so, oh boy, this is a high insult in Washington, unserious. <gasps> you call somebody unserious in Washington and oh boy, because they're all very serious with their ties and their suits and their pocket pen protectors. They have their trapper keepers or whatever the heck they have. Don't dare call them unserious. I know of what I speak because I guarantee you not one of these people cares about pronouncing my name right or could. If I spent my life correcting people on how to pronounce my last name, I would do nothing else. I tell this to my wife about Canada because the city of Toronto, Americans say Toronto. It's a little bit different there. They leave out that first O. And I told her since we got married, well, there's more of us in the United States. We say it however we want to say it. Anyway, while Kiev and Moscow will settle territorial matters, Dr. Paul told The Sun, the U.S. is in no position to offer a security guarantee to Ukraine. The United States is over $32 trillion in debt and provided so much aid to Ukraine that we now have a critical shortage of ammunition that will take years to resupply. Since the war began, our government directed more than $113 billion in taxpayer-provided assistance to Ukraine, surpassing all European allies combined. Dr. Paul then put it in perspective, and he said the amount is nearly 18 times the $6.4 billion we spend on cancer research every year. And the Biden administration recently announced it will seek an additional $24 billion for Ukraine. We cannot spend such a massive sum this quickly without waste, fraud, and abuse. This is something I wrote about a few months ago in The Sun. 
where Senator Paul just wanted some oversight for this money. And he was told, no, he's voted down by the whole Senate, Republicans and Democrats. We, you can't know where this money is going. Man, where do I sign up for that blank check? I wish they were that casual about us sending in that tax money. Gosh, you make a mistake on your taxes, leave a comma out, leave a period out. The comma was an actual court case on somebody's taxes. Man, they're at your door, right? But when they're spending our money, oh, I don't want to insult drunken sailors because drunken sailors don't spend like this. And at least they only deal with themselves. They're not screwing us. They're just living their own lives. Ultimately, Senator Paul said only Russia and Ukraine could decide when to begin peace negotiations. But unlimited armaments for Ukraine likely deters them from engaging in peace talks. Also, unrealistic preconditions such as Russia returning Crimea before negotiations can begin delays peace talks. The likely result of a prolonged war is continued suffering of Ukraine and its people. The party should agree to a ceasefire so that peace talks may begin. Well, honestly, I don't think we are going to get a ceasefire. But shouldn't somebody be talking about peace? Senator Paul is the only one I think I have heard talk about peace. It's just continue to fund, continue to fund. Nobody anymore is quoting the warning of President Dwight D. Eisenhower in his farewell address about the military-industrial complex, are they? And by the way, in his original draft, he wanted to call it the military-congressional complex because he knew that the people in Congress were trying to bring that pork back home. And they were happy to fund and fund and fund things like that imaginary missile gap that John F. Kennedy ran on in 1960 that didn't exist. There was no missile gap. The U.S. was not behind. But it sounded really good. And what, what we got to spend? What, what's that? What's that? This is all the stuff that the left used to imagine existed. And now that it really exists, it's just as if it's not even happening. One more thing on Ukraine and about why it's important we know where this money is going Yesterday, I talked about how the phrase conspiracy theory has been turned into a pejorative that's just meaningless. Well, this is one of the things about there being Nazis in Ukraine. Doesn't mean that everybody in Ukraine is a Nazi. Why do I even have to keep saying that kind of thing? Everybody knows exactly what I'm saying. But we do know that there are Nazis and Nazi sympathies in Ukraine. We know that they welcomed the Nazis in World War II. We know that there are statues and streets honoring Nazis, Nazi sympathizers. You think for all those billions of dollars, since we're so hepped up to knock down statues here in the U.S. and change names, we changed Fort Bragg. You couldn't tell them, hey, change big Nazi friend street there in Ukraine or whatever it is. It's only helping this dope Putin who insists on saying this war, his lame pretense is to denazify a country run by a Jewish guy in Zelensky. But this Azov battalion is a paramilitary hate group patterned on Hitler's brown shirts. I wrote about this in the Washington Times in March of 2022. They're part of Ukraine's National Guard. Their logo is the wolf sangle of the 2nd SS Panzer Division. You don't choose a Panzer Division logo unless you really like Hitler. That logo resembles a swastika doing yoga, I wrote. And they've also adopted Thor's hammer, Mjolnir, which is another white supremacist symbol which really drives me nuts. The idea that Nazis, neo-Nazis, white supremacists would steal from Norse mythology, the sacred hammer of Mjolnir. I would tell them all, you are not worthy to pick up Mjolnir, much less use his name. Good luck trying to lift it. I guess now with the movies, more people get that joke. It would have been a lot more obscure in the days before the movies came out and people started knowing what Mjolnir was. I just like to say Mjolnir. I'm pretty good at pronouncing it, huh? But they do the same thing with Greeks. So that's where they got the name Aryan from. 
This despite the Nazis occupying Greece and starving about 100,000 people to death, shipping out a lot of our Jewish population, although there's many heroic stories of Greeks, in particular the Greek Orthodox Church, protecting Jewish people in Thessaloniki, for one thing, Greece's second largest city, known as the mother of Israel. The patriarch in Athens would give them fake baptismal certificates to avoid being deported by the Nazis. But this Azov Battalion is a real thing. A former chair of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, Yaroslav Stetko, and this group is allied with Azov, stated, quote, I insist on the extermination of Jews in Ukraine. I don't know. I don't want this guy to get one dime of what we're sending over there. And also, think a little strategically. This is the kind of moron Putin makes a poster boy to, I talked about how everyone lives in World War II, whip up his country into the idea that this is a second great patriotic war, as they call World War II. He tells his people they're Nazis. Do people really believe it? Well, I don't know. We have people here who say everybody they don't like is a Nazi, and there seems to be plenty of people who unfortunately believe it. Why give him fuel for his fire? Fuel like Azov's founder, Andrei Belitsky. He described the battalion's goal as leading the white races of the world in a final crusade for their survival. My skin's crawling just having to quote this crap to you. But when Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey, a Democrat, was asked by The Intercept if he'd make sure none of the half a billion dollars reached the Azov Battalion of these pieces of garbage who seek a race war and seek real white supremacy that we hear about all the time, Menendez said, that's a level of detail I'm not sure about. Well, great. Maybe you should be. You're a United States senator. That piece in The Intercept was headlined, Neo-Nazis not top of mind for Senate Democrats pushing weapons for Ukraine. Senator Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire, another Democrat, was also indifferent to this idea of some of this money making it to Nazis. Not top of mind. The weakest way you could possibly describe it. Doesn't sound like it's anywhere in their minds. And it should be. Especially when now we're told we can't even ask where the money is going. In 2014, the UK Guardian quoted one member who said he's fighting Russia not because he seeks liberty, but because he falsely thinks, quote, Putin is a Jew. This is really gross stuff. Andrei Dyachenko, an Azov spokesperson, isn't it nice? They think they're people. They have spokespeople, just like real human beings, like they're Xerox or something. He told USA Today that 10 to 20 percent of the group's members are Nazis. In the same report, a drill sergeant boasted, boasted, mind you, of being a Nazi, but shrugged that no more than half his comrades are. Ah, oh, well, hardly comforting, right? As David Petrucia notes in 1932, the rise of Hitler and FDR, just a third of Germans voted Hitler into power. We used to agree on this sort of thing as a nation not so long ago. When Putin first invaded Ukraine several years ago, Congress passed funding to assist, quote, European countries facing Russian aggression. And former representatives John Conyers and Ted Yoho co-sponsored a law that, quote, limits arms training and other assistance to the neo-Nazi Ukrainian militia, the Azov Battalion. Subsequent Congresses kept that in place. But now you mention this, not even in the context of, oh my gosh, there's a lot of Nazis, but just making sure that we at least have the moral high ground and can tell Putin he's full of crap when he talks about he's there for denazification, you're somehow saying they're all Nazis or you're somehow for Russia expanding. Well, people on the right were against Soviet expansion, against communism before it was cool. And please don't tell me that Putin, a guy who lived his life in the KGB, is somehow not a communist, a guy who openly pines for reassembling the Soviet Union, which is exactly what he's doing in Ukraine. Nope. 
overnight, suddenly he's right wing somehow, which just means he's bad. So few words in our language seem to mean what they once meant. Conspiracy theory is one of them. Expert is another one of them. They just don't mean anything anymore. All they know is he is not on their side. He's against them now. So even though when he was in the KGB, he was one of those guys staying in the police, was trying to make goo-goo eyes at, trying to understand and reach across the Iron Curtain to, oh, no, now he's against us. Now he did a bad thing. So suddenly he has to be the other side's problem. I mentioned the police, the song Russians, and the fact that Sting decided he would flip now. He's he's figured it out. The Russians actually don't love their children, which is, of course, an absurd thing to say. But somehow this war made him decide to retract a 40-year-old song, and he no longer thinks that it applies. These are strange, weird, crazy times. I want to bring you, though, a story here as we close, as we're speaking of rock music. It's a story that's spurred by a book called His Majesty's Airship, The Life and Tragic Death of the World's Largest Flying Machine, about the R-101. S.C. Gwynn, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, is the author of that book. I interviewed him recently, and I will be airing that interview down the road, so definitely look for it. His Majesty's Airship, again, is the name. I talked with him about Zeppelins, and a story came up about the band Led Zeppelin. One of the descendants of the German hero, Baron von Zeppelin, who was an innovator with rigid airships, she decided she was offended by the band's name. Frau Eva von Zeppelin. Pretty sweet name if you're in an old vampire film, I guess. She tried to stop the band from playing on a Danish TV show after their performance in Copenhagen. In 1970, she didn't want them to play a concert there. She threatened to sue them, and she publicly called them, quote, shrieking monkeys. <laughs> That's pretty sweet. Jimmy Page, John Bonham, Robert Plant, and John Paul Jones all decided they would meet this little old German lady, and they would schmooze her and be nice and maybe have some tea and crackers and say, hey, we're, we're decent guys. We're just rock and rollers. We intended no offense. We're not being derogatory to your famous ancestor or to your family name so according to jimmy page they had the meeting right there at the tv studio and frau zeppelin liked them had a good time hung out with the band and she said okay you can keep using my family name i understand now i get where you guys are coming from then she exits the studio and she sees the cover of the band's first album, their self-titled album, Led Zeppelin. And it has that infamous photograph of the Hindenburg crashing in Lindhurst, New Jersey. Oh, the humanity. So she gets all re-angry again and insists that they can't use it. And she is so disgusted and enraged. And I guess you can't blame this little lady trying to protect the family name. You have to admire people who want to protect the past if you're a historian. So I guess I have to say hats off to Frau Zeppelin. Now, I didn't look into much more of her. I don't know what she did during the war. <laughs> For this little narrow sliver of her life, I do not attest to her character beyond that. But it was pretty cool. Led Zeppelin still rocked Copenhagen. They used the name The Knobs. The name was a pun because the name of their European promoter was Claude Knobs. So there's your little bit of rock and roll history. Where has the week gone? Tomorrow is already Friday. Remember to go to patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast or DerekHunter.locals.com to support Derek. He will be doing the Week in Effort Review. So if you are a member there, you will be enjoying that shortly after the clock strikes midnight on Friday. So we're talking 
one minute. Saturday is only a minute old. Derek will have the weekend effort review out there for all of you. Also, there is that deal that I mentioned for the New York Sun. You get the New York Sun for a penny a day, and you get that snazzy New York Sun mug. That is at nysun.com slash mug for details. Plus, you can enter to win an autographed copy of Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's book, Never Give an Inch, Fighting for the America I Love. You do that at nysun.com slash book. Enter the big sweepstakes. Best of luck to everybody. I want to thank you again for listening. I've really enjoyed spending time with you. I've enjoyed getting reps, as Derek calls it. I like to see that I'm maintaining the numbers, more or less, that Derek had. I hope if you do enjoy hearing me, you'll check me out at the New York Sun. Check out the History Author Show and come back tomorrow on Friday. Bring a friend and we'll have some fun as we close out the week. My name is Frankenstein!